Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. This evening holds degrees from Dickinson College, Princeton Theological Seminary, the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, and Columbia Theological Seminary. Dr. David C. Campbell was a pastor in the Presbyterian Church for 25 years before being received into the Catholic Church in 2009. He is currently a Latin and Social Studies teacher at Centerville High School in Clifton, Virginia. Dr. Campbell and his wife Ellen have two grown children and one grandchild. Please join me in welcoming back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Dr. David Campbell. Well, good evening, everybody, and uh, thanks once again uh, for inviting me. The, uh, it was my very great privilege uh, back in April to address the Institute of Catholic Culture on the topic of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I said at the beginning of that talk that it was my intention to be thoroughly practical. I said that there was no use in my talking about the evidence for the resurrection unless it was your purpose to talk about the evidence for the resurrection too. I think it was pretty easy to make that point uh, because, let's face it, uh, the resurrection is the claim that we Christians make uh, on which everything stands or falls. If the resurrection isn't true, then nothing is. <clears throat> so I think that strikes uh, people as rather obvious. So what about kenosis? I don't think there's anything obvious about kenosis. Uh, in large degree, because I think almost nobody knows what it is. <laughs> I was working on this uh, talk uh, at the pool uh, this summer. Uh, I was uh, reading some stuff uh, while I was uh, amusing my grandson. And <clears throat> there was a guy sitting at the table next to me. He asked me what I was working on. I said, kenosis. <laughs> He said, Gesundheit. <laughs> Another guy said he knew all about it. I said, yeah? He said, yeah. He said, my brother-in-law had that. Uh, yeah, very painful, he said. And I hear it's particularly bad this time of the year. Uh, I, I hope I uh, don't offend anybody if I, if I wonder out loud if some of you may have come here tonight not entirely clear about what kenosis is. Uh, so, kenosis is not an everyday term, <laughs> needless to say. It's a technical term in spiritual theology, and it refers to emptying. Uh, in traditions like Buddhism, uh, kenosis means a radical renunciation of all created things. In traditions like Buddhism. Uh, making an empty space uh, within that can be filled then with spiritual insight. So kenosis is uh, making space for the divine. Uh, in traditions like uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, uh, kenosis can refer to an extinction of all sense experience. 
uh, all sense experience, all perception of anything in this world, believing that nothing in this world is capable of expressing the infinity of God. Uh, and extinction, of course, is the literal meaning of the term nirvana. Uh, in Hinduism and in Buddhism, uh, nirvana refers to this extinction of uh, sensory perception. Now, uh, this is emphatically not the Catholic view, uh, and this uh, uh, view in uh, Buddhism and Hinduism is very problematic uh, for, for us Catholics. Because if it were for us an extinction of uh, perception, that would involve a renunciation of Christ, who, as we claim, possessed a fully formed human nature. Christian spirituality, and we're going to talk more about this uh, next Thursday night, Christian spirituality uh, is meditation on the incarnate Christ, crucified and risen, whom we know by the power of the Holy Spirit. Kenosis for us simply cannot be the renunciation of the worldly so that we can just disappear into the divine. Uh, for the very simple reason that we are not divine. We are not uncreated reality. We are and we will always be creatures. But the other exists in God because uh, Christ is part of the Holy Trinity with the same flesh, same human nature that we have. Kenosis for us, therefore, means renunciation of all those things that keep us from full communion with Christ crucified and risen. Got all that? That's pretty abstract stuff. That's pretty abstract stuff, uh, and I don't live in a very abstract world. I'm a public school teacher. <laughs> My students came back to school this week. Yesterday, one of my juniors in U.S. history class was unclear about the number of letters in the alphabet. <laughs> How many letters in the alphabet? Twenty-five, Dr. Campbell. And I said, really? She said, yes, A-E-I-O-U, but only sometimes Y. <laughs> I don't live in a very abstract world. And quite frankly, all this stuff that I just said about kenosis is going to go right over the heads of all my students, every single one. More to the point, it's going to go right over the head of all my colleagues, uh, who are all well-educated citizens, and in some cases, very well-educated Catholics, right over their heads. More frankly still, it's going to go right over their heads or bounce off of most Catholic pew-sitters. I dare any priest to try a homily on kenosis. <laughs> <laughs> most Catholics are going to say that we have more concrete things to worry about. Here's a few. The number of uh, people in the United States uh, claiming no religious affiliation has grown to about 22%, according to the Pew Research Center, 22%. According to Pew, uh, the nuns, uh, note the spelling, the nuns now outnumber the Catholics in the United States. The people claiming no religious affiliation Please bear in mind, if they claim no religious affiliation, that doesn't make them atheists. But more about that some other time. 
the nuns, though, uh, outnumber uh, the Catholics. That's a, that's a first in uh, U.S. history. The percentage of people self-identifying as Catholics has dropped 3% since 2007. Here's another one. The fact that the number of uh, ex-Catholics in the United States put them together into one denomination, they'd be the second largest denomination in the country. The number of ex-Catholics put them together in one denomination, the second largest denomination in the country. Now, Catholic pew-sitters like yourselves, uh, like me, uh, we already know this. This data is out there every day every day and if I can find it in seconds and I can and I'm not bragging I'm uh, I'm technologically not the most adept school teacher all my students could find this in nanoseconds all of them and I can I can tell you the conclusion that they're going to draw seems to them looking at data like this seems to many others that Christianity in general and Catholicism in particular are fading fast. That's the conclusion that they draw. And I can also tell you that there's a powerful constituency out there that wants you to come to the same conclusion. A powerful constituency out there wants you to believe that the forces of secularism are powerful to the point of being irresistible. And they're winning, they want you to believe. And that the most that we Catholics or any religious people can do is to fight our own pathetic little rear guard actions while our houses crumble around us. A powerful constituency out there wants you to believe that the world is becoming less religious, that religious people uh, are part of the past, they are part of the problem, they are not part of the future, and they are not part of the answer. There's a powerful constituency out there that wants you to believe that, and that powerful constituency is the secularized media of the United States and Europe. Nobody here is surprised by that. Right? All right. Now, it would probably shock the secularized media to discover that the rest of the world begs to differ. In fact, the world is becoming more religious, not less religious. Here's some more data also from the Pew Research Center. In about 10 years, 10 years from now, the largest Christian country in the world is going to be China. Ten years from now, the largest Christian country in the world is going to be China. By 2050, there will be more Christians in China than there are people in the United States. By 2050, the number of people who are religiously unaffiliated is projected to go down, not up, worldwide. In fact, it's already started. Uh, this past spring, D Dominic uh, Johnson of o Oxford University has one of the most unusual doubles in all of academia. He has a PhD 
in evolutionary bi biology and a PhD in political science. Uh, and he wrote a book uh, that was published last spring called God is Watching You, in which he argues very persuasively that the world is evolving toward religion. Now, the, the very interesting feature of this is that Dominic Johnson is not a believer. He's not a believer, but he uh, makes the case that the world is evolving toward religion, not away from it. He says that our large brains and our complex language systems have created these large societies which require sophisticated mechanisms for cooperation. And the most useful mechanism for cooperation so far that the world has found is religion. And that is an argument in favor of the truthfulness of religion. As we speak, as we speak, non-belief is defending less and less. Non-believers no longer argue, in fact, because they can't argue uh, that the universe is infinite in the past or that subjective morality is really moral. Uh, non-belief, contemporary non-belief recognizes that there is a space-time boundary uh, and that science as science is not qualified to describe uh, whatever it is that brought the universe into being. All that's true. These are huge developments. These are huge. My question is this, why don't we know this? Why don't we know this? Part of the reason is that we don't control the media. Uh, and we have a difficult time finding a lot of this information. But part of the reason also is, uh, Catholics, that we are not interested enough in our religion and its prospects. That's also true. We are not interested enough to find out. But the reality is, nonetheless, uh, that we are in a much stronger position than we think we are. So I submit to you that subjects like kenosis are of much more practical importance than we think. Kenosis means, as I said, emptying, making space for the divine. If indications are that religion is growing in importance in the world, and if we are growing toward it, not away from it, then we want to make very sure that we're getting it right about how we are related to the divine. I submit to you that topics like kenosis are increasing in practical importance. So uh, I'm going to be talking to you uh, tonight and next Thursday night, and in the course of these two talks, I propose to cover six things. <clears throat> Yoga, Zen, and Transcendental Meditation are three currently fashionable forms of unchurched spirituality. Now, unchurched spirituality speaks about being connected to God in a particular way. Is it adequate? Is it even new? Uh, I will be explaining to you that unchurched spirituality, in fact, is not new. Uh, in fact, it's been around for about 300 years in the United States. So we're going to consider uh, together uh, six things. One, what is unchurched spirituality? Come on now. Oh, there we go. What is unchurched spirituality? What's the story of unchurched spirituality, and specifically yoga, Zen, and transcendental meditation in the United States? <clears throat> 
Is there anything about unchurched spirituality that we Catholics can affirm? Where do we Catholics have to draw lines? And why? Fifth, what are the basic features of Catholic spirituality that we must affirm and reclaim? And lastly, why does all this make a difference? So those are the six topics that I'm going to cover uh, in the talks uh, tonight uh, and tomorrow night. So what is unchurched spirituality? Unchurched spirituality refers to those people who seek spiritual insight and meaning, but they seek it outside churches or any organized religion. You know, I use that term organized religion quite a lot. Perhaps you do too. I've spent my life in organized religion. And I'm not entirely clear what's so organized about it. Um, at any rate, <clears throat> unchurched spirituality, those people who are seeking spiritual insight and meaning outside of churches or any organized religion. Now, we already know that many Americans have ambiguous relationships uh, with any church or any organized religion. Many of these people uh, do attend services, Christian services, six times per year uh, or more, but their members no place. So uh, one of the first characteristics we can say about uh, unchurched spirituality is that it's made up of people who are not joiners. It's made up of people who are not joiners. In fact, they often feel that organized religion is an enemy of what they regard as authentic spirituality. According to some studies, 51% of all Americans think churches and synagogues have lost the real spiritual part of their religion. Uh, unchurched spirituality tends to regard religion as church attendance and commitment to certain orthodox beliefs. Spirituality, on the other hand, in their lexicon, refers to experience, it refers to experimentation and mystical practices. Demographically, Unchurched uh, spirituality tends to be white, liberal, well-educated, and well-off, and usually young to middle-aged. Typically, those drawn to unchurched spirituality have not had negative experiences of organized religion. Some have. Uh, some uh, have been very upset, for instance, by the clergy sex scandal of the last decade or so. but. Most have not had negative experiences of organized religion. Religion is just not a fixed thing for them. They fully expect to change their religious beliefs in some uh, part of their lives. Uh, they regard the visible world as part of a larger spiritual universe and that participation in that larger world is the purpose of life. Unchurched spirituality is dissatisfied, uh, not just with organized religion, but also with the materialistic culture that we inhabit. Yearns for a more significant and meaningful spiritual path. However, uh, it also lacks a strong institutional base. Institution, uh, 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 unchurched spirituality tends not to form organizations and institutions. And so it has a very difficult time sustaining uh, enthusiasm for its projects or building community. 
Uh, organized religions, on the other hand, because of their focus on orthodoxy and the consistency of their beliefs, are basically competent to connect contemplative and moral awareness. Uh, unchurched spirituality, because of the fluidity of its beliefs, is much more uneven on this. Uh, unchurched spirituality tends to waffle on matters like sin and moral goodness. So a valid critique of unchurched spirituality is that it's weak on sin. It tends toward narcissism, uh, namely, a, a, that is a, a focus on personal experiences at the expense of relationships and community. And related to this is a lack of discipline. Uh, because of a suspicion of uh, organization and orthodoxy, unchurched spirituality tends not to produce qualified teachers. Uh, and it has a distinct uh, do-it-yourself uh, approach to spiritual practices. Uh, even in the traditions that it admires, uh, unchurched spirituality has particular admiration for Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, uh, Hinduism, of course, gives us yoga. Uh, Buddhism gives us Zen. In those traditions, uh, the sannyasins, uh, the bodhisattvas, often spend years developing their insights, usually under the tutelage of a spiritual master. And that's almost entirely absent uh, from unchurched spirituality in the United States. Uh, and so unchurched spirituality can be reasonably criticized for being a little superficial. Now, so far, this is a very general description, but already we can see uh, the outline of some things that we Catholics can affirm and several lines of valid critique. We Catholics can certainly affirm the dissatisfaction with the materialistic culture and the yearning for a more meaningful spiritual path. Uh, we can see eye to eye with unsure spirituality on that one. We can also own a certain amount of responsibility for the spiritual dryness uh, that unchurched spirituality has identified. I'm a member of a parish with uh, close to 4,000 families. In our parish, we have only two Bible study groups for adults, and only one which meets at a time when most adults can attend. And that's not uncommon. We all know that to be true. We're going to discuss this in greater detail next time. Uh, but in Christian spirituality, Catholic spirituality, meditation on Holy Scripture is central. And we Catholics are simply not serious about that. And I think we know that. We are not serious about Bible study. We can affirm the view of unchurched spirituality that the material world is part of a larger spiritual universe and that it's the purpose of life to uh, become, uh, have a living connection uh, with that larger world. We can affirm the critique of unchurched spirituality uh, that it, uh, spiritual, uh, unchurched spirituality, lacks discipline. It's weak on moral agency, community formation. But while acknowledging that, we can also uh, admit that we have often failed as Catholics to affirm the moral agency and the community structures that are supposed to be a much more vivid part of our own tradition. We can affirm the critique that unchurched spirituality neglects spiritual masters. But let me ask you this. 
Have we Catholics paid enough attention to our own spiritual masters? Do we even know who they are? Let me throw this out uh, and uh, ask you to think about it. When I'm talking about spiritual masters, I'm not talking about people who write books, that you go to the bookstore, you buy the book, you know, you read the, the works of the spiritual master. We're supposed to have spiritual masters in our parishes. In your parish, you know who they are? It's a valid question to wonder whether our priests or enough of our priests are spiritual masters. It's an even more valid question to wonder how many of our parishioners are. Catholic sisters and brothers, it is not just ordained people who are called to be spiritual masters. We all are. Do we know the people in our parishes, the lay people in our parishes, who are spiritual masters? So in this uh, general overview uh, of unchurched spirituality, we can already see some valid, several valid criticisms and uh, some vectors for growth that point to uh, the usefulness of some ongoing conversation. So what's the story of unchurched spirituality in the United States? Well, unchurched spirituality in the United States, uh, United States goes back to the colonial era. I'm going to put on my U.S. history teacher hat for just a few minutes uh, and tell you that in the late 17th century, fewer than a third of all residents in British North America belonged uh, to a church as members. In, the, in late 17th century, fewer than a third of all residents of British North America were members of any church. By the time of the Revolution, uh, outside of New England, it was only about 15%. Uh, in his famous chronicle of life in the American colonies, Hector St. John de Crevecourt observed this, that religious indifference is imperceptibly disseminated from one end of the continent to another, which is at present one of the strongest characteristics of the American people. So, uh, there are a great many unchurched uh, spiritual practices in colonial America. Uh, they uh, included, but are not limited to, divination, fortune-telling, witchcraft, astrology, and herbalism. Uh, certain occult practices had to do with healing sicknesses, finding water, maintaining the food supply. The colonial clergy, uh, the uh, great uh, majority of whom at that time were Calvinists, uh, insisted on talking about the remoteness, about the aloofness of God, and it rendered their preaching nearly irrelevant to the spiritual needs of everyday people. Those people did not need to know about how far away God was. They needed to know how close he was. And the colonial clergy were just not answering the mail. So more than one historian has suggested that 17th century Protestant theology in the United States created a market for unchurched spirituality all the way up to the time of the First Great Awakening in the 1730s. The Age of Reason uh, reached its zenith uh, at the time of the American Revolution. Many of the founders of the United States, uh, including Thomas Jefferson, uh, James Madison, Benjamin Franklin, Tom Paine, believed that true religion was religion that was harmonious with scientific reason. 
And the religion that struck them as most reasonable was deism. Freemasonry uh, at the time of the revolution was steeped in deism. Viewed God as the impersonal architect. By 1776, there were 40 Masonic lodges in the United States, 52 of 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence were Masons. Unitarians and Universalists uh, also fostered a lot of religious experimentation at that time. Thomas Jefferson was so impressed by their influence that he said this in 1822, quote, I trust that there is not a young man living in the United States who will not die a Unitarian. Thomas Jefferson, 1822. So, deists, Freemasons, Unitarians, Universalists were among the first experimenters seeking unchurched spirituality in the early history of the United States. Now, the early American Republic saw two new intellectual systems to rival organized religion, uh, the most influential of which was the work of the Swedish mystic Emanuel uh, Swedenborg. That name ring a bell? Yeah? No? Uh, there's, a, there's a beautiful Swedenborgian church in Philadelphia. If you're ever in, uh, in Philadelphia, uh, look up that uh, church. It's, uh, it's quite striking. The influence of his work is noticeable in every unchurched spiritual tradition uh, that has emerged in America since the 18th century. Swedenborg was interested in the relationship of spirit to matter. Two principal doctrines, correspondence and influx. He said spirit and matter are not opposed to one another, but they're complementary, and said, he said they're inseparable. He described seven different uh, principal dimensions of the universe, but he said God's spirit is the source of everything, working in and through every single dimension of existence. So he said there's a constant influx of divine spirit into every dimension of experience. All true progress, he said, proceeds according to influences received from above. And through diligent study and by mystical states of awareness, anyone could obtain the necessary knowledge to make contact with these higher levels of existence. And there you could become privy to cosmological secrets. You could have conversations with angelic beings. You could learn the true meaning of Holy Scripture. Now, uh, Swedenborg's uh, description of the spiritual world uh, never influenced a majority. It was only a minority who were white, well-educated, and well-off. It undermined uh, the Calvinist doctrine of human depravity. That appealed to some of those folks a lot. And it suggested an alternative to literal readings of the Bible. Uh, and also, and this really appealed in some of the early years of the uh, American Republic, it uh, uh, strengthened the, de uh, the democratic faith in every individual's unlimited potential uh, for development. <clears throat> now, uh, also influenced uh, by Swedenborg uh, were a group of rebellious Unitarians uh, who in 1836 met to form the Transcendental Club. And among these uh, was this man, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, who became the principal architect of what we call today American transcendentalism. So we've had uh, Swedenborg, uh, now we have transcendentalism. Uh, Emerson had been introduced to uh, Swedenborg's writings as a student at Harvard. Uh, 
uh, and the doctrines of correspondence and influx became central to transcendentalism. Like Swedenborg, uh, Emerson and the transcendentalists believe that every human being has potential to be receptive to the inflow of spiritual energy. Uh, but unlike Swedenborg, uh, the transcendentalists said that you don't have to uh, have that mediated to you by somebody else. Uh, Emerson proclaimed that each individual could receive God's uh, inflowing spirit without any mediation whatsoever. The transcendentalists were also a lot harder on Christianity uh, than Swedenborg was. They denied any special divinity to Jesus, uh, any monopoly on religious truth to the Bible. <clears throat> now, transcendentalism uh, emerged at a time that might be called a metaphysical awakening. It was in the mid-1830s. There are other metaphysical awakenings uh, in the late 19th century, uh, again in the 1970s, uh, and again in the 1990s. Uh, interestingly, all these uh, movements, all these unchurched spiritual movements, went into eclipse at the time of great national crises. So uh, they pretty much stopped during the Civil War and stopped during the World Wars, but resumed immediately thereafter. Uh, now also emerging about this time uh, was a popularization of the thought of Franz Anton Mesmer and his theory of animal magnetism. Uh, Mesmer was a Viennese uh, physician. He claimed to have detected this invisible, superfine substance that he called animal magnetism. He said this uh, permeates the physical universe. Uh, it holds the universe together. Uh, it makes possible the transmission of all causal influences that come from God. Uh, and it's evenly distributed, this animal magnetism, throughout the universe and throughout every uh, healthy human body. <clears throat> Every illness, Mesmer claimed, could be traced to a disturbance in the uh, body's supply of animal magnetism. And what he uh, developed was these techniques for inducing relaxed mental states, and then he would pass magnets, uh, or his bare hands sometimes, over their bodies, and this would stimulate, he said, the flow of animal magnetism to the affected areas. Uh, this was brought to the United States in 1836, and the enthusiasm for it was so fantastic that by 1843, there were as many as 200 magnetic healers just in Boston. Chiropractic got its start from mesmerism. Uh, the founder of chiropractic uh, was uh, David, uh, Daniel David Palmer. He believed, believed that distortions of the spine uh, could impede the flow of animal magma magnetism, so if you fix the spine, well, then the, uh, the animal magnetism will flow better. Uh, chiropractic has come a long way from there. <clears throat> anyway, mesmerism was really attractive to people uh, who uh, were taken uh, with the advance of science and allowed them to describe scientifically how God is electrically and magnetically connected to the universe. Uh, about the same time, uh, spiritualism emerged in the uh, writing of a guy named Andrew Jackson Davis. Uh, this is Andrew Jackson Davis. He taught that people can enter these, uh, these states of uh, mystical reverie uh, without any assistance from a mesmerist. This is true do-it-yourself uh, spirituality. 
and there you could receive messages from spirits. We're going to, we're going to see this again in the 20th century. Uh, he uh, d described God in, uh, in an impersonal way, calling God an impersonal energy or intelligence. Swedenborg uh, discouraged trying to make contact with the spirits. He did, uh, Swedenborg did not think that the spiritual world was uniformly good. Uh, but spiritualism didn't have any uh, anxieties about that. Thought that uh, the spiritual world, only good things can happen. Well, who, uh, who found spiritualism appealing? Protestantism for a long time had slammed Catholics uh, because of their relationships with saints. But many people felt that this left people alone uh, before a wrathful and intimidating God. It would be nice to have a friendly relationship with a spiritual being. So all those people who were seeking, seeking some kind of alternative to a cold and fearful Protestantism, uh, as well as an alternative to Catholic saints, found the spirit guides of spiritualism to be a useful alternative. Now, once again, I have to tell you that this was never a majority. It was only ever a minority who were white, well-educated, and well-off. Now, uh, as I said, uh, all this came to a screeching halt with the Civil War. All these uh, the unchurched spiritual traditions came to a halt during the Civil War, <clears throat> as they would again during the World Wars of the 20th century. And it suggests another uh, line of critique of unchurched spirituality uh, that it's unable to deal with moral or political crisis. Well, we can see uh, in Swedenborgianism, Transcendentalism, Mesmerism, Spiritualism, uh, some of the characteristics we talked about at the start. Unchurched spirituality emerges from a dissatisfaction with conventional religion. It emerges amongst a minority of people, never more than about 10% of the population, usually less, who are white, well-educated, and well-off. It typically does not emerge as the result of negative interactions with organized religion. It's focused on individual experience. It's weak on forming relationships and community. And as a consequence, these movements have trouble uh, lasting more than a generation or so. Reluctant to develop, uh, reluctant to develop mediators or teachers uh, and ill-equipped to deal with moral crises like war because it assumes that the spiritual world is uniformly good. Well, what happened after the Civil War? Uh, many people consider the late 19th and 20th centuries to be the time of the flowering of unchurched spirituality. Phineas Quimby uh, had been an early adopter of mesmerism, but came to believe that what actually healed people uh, was not mesmerism per se, uh, not animal magnetism, but their own beliefs. And he called his approach uh, mind cure and made a very big impression on one of his patients, whose name was Mary Baker Eddy, uh, who made mind cure the central feature of Christian science, uh, which taught that illness could be healed through more focused thought uh, brought about by a clearer perception of God. She wrote a book, uh, Science and Health with a Key to the Scriptures, uh, sold uh, 400,000 copies by 1900. 
That doesn't sound like a lot today, uh, but in the late 19th century, that was huge. Uh, another uh, patient of Phineas Quimby was a guy named uh, Warren Felt Evans, uh, thought that the healing power and message of early Christianity were connected. If only people could engage them at the deepest levels of thought. Opened a healing practice in Boston, as did uh, Annetta and Julius Dresser who organized their patients into discussion groups. Uh, so you have the emergence of talk therapy. Uh, and subsequently into classes for which they gave uh, uh, credits and charged tuition. Uh, metaph metaphysical healing groups saturated Boston. Uh, and it spread to New York, uh, Chicago, Kansas City, Los Angeles. And it came to be called the New Thought Philosophy. The New Thought Philosophy. And they proclaimed that in God's universe, mind, Mind is primary and causal. Matter is secondary. The way to accomplish anything, the way to perfect anything, the way to bring anything uh, into being or promote progress involved processes that were mental and spiritual. The only thing that separates people from the healing and formative power of God is limited self-understanding. So you see the emergence here of uh, this idea that mind is the most important thing in the world. Uh, New Thought uh, denied that Jesus or any other teacher had a monopoly on spiritual truth. The end of the 19th century, uh, beginning of the 20th, also saw the, uh, the, uh, uh, the biggest uh, unchurched spiritual deal uh, of the whole century with the emergence of theosophy. Uh, with uh, Madame Helena Blavatsky. Uh, she uh, emigrated from Russia to New York in 1872. In 1875, founded the Theosophical Society. Uh, she taught that life begins with a divine spark that is projected into the world of matter, and after that is always evolving back toward its divine source. And this was extremely attractive to those people who were already being persuaded by Darwin. She wrote a book, uh, 1888, uh, The Secret Doctrine. Uh, to date, has already has sold over 500,000 copies. She introduced American readers to Hindu concepts like karma uh, and reincarnation. Uh, she introduced uh, the uh, yoga and Zen insights of uh, Satori, Chi, uh, Kundalini, and Shikantaza, all of which we'll talk about next time. And all of this was given intellectual re uh, respectability uh, by a philosopher named William James, uh, taught at Harvard, uh, and his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, uh, has been huge in the field of comparative religion ever since. Uh, William James himself was not a mystic, but he admired mysticism, uh, and his father, Henry James Sr., had been a friend of Emerson and an early adopter of uh, Emanuel Swedenborg. It was William James who argued that there's an experiential core to all true religion. And he was the one who said uh, and made it a, a centerpiece of all unchurched spirituality in the United States that there's a larger spiritual world out there and the purpose of life is to connect with that larger spiritual world. Uh, it's no surprise that William James and Ralph Waldo Emerson are the two brightest lights in the intellectual firmament of unchurched spirituality. Right up to the present, uh, unchurched spirituality is very self-conscious about intellectual respectability. 
uh, and the academic pedigrees of its heroes. Uh, and there is uh, nobody who's got uh, a prettier academic pred uh, pedigree than Emerson and William James. Well, uh, World War I came along, followed by World War II. Things went into uh, all these unchurched spiritual tradition traditions uh, went into uh, hibernation again. But um, <clears throat> after World War II, uh, the, some of the theosophical ideas that started with uh, Madame Blavatsky uh, came back, uh, partly in the remarkable career of a man named Edgar Cayce. Uh, name, that name ring a bell with anybody? Edgar Cayce introduced Americans to trance channeling. Uh, in these self-induced hypnotic trances, this should start sounding a little bit familiar now, uh, Cayce would hold forth on themes like reincarnation, Atlantis, uh, astrology. Uh, this was further popularized in the 70s by a woman named Jay-Z Knight, uh, who began speaking and publishing about her spiritual action, uh, uh, interactions uh, with a spiritual being she called Ramtha. Uh, Helen Shookman uh, also trans-channeled in her popular presentations uh, that some of you may have heard about uh, that she called A Course in Miracles. And this had a very powerful influence on a woman who's still writing. Her name is Marianne Williamson. She has written about a dozen books. She has one out right now. Uh, 2016, Tears to Triumph, it's called. Uh, she expands on the theme that thought is the most creative power in the universe. And so connecting to that thought at the deepest sources is the most personally empowering thing a person can do. Are you seeing the connections uh, that go all the way back to early in the 19th century and before? Are you seeing that? Now, unchurched spirituality also, interestingly enough, had a significant impact on Christians in the 1950s, and nobody had a bigger impact uh, than uh, Norman Vincent Peale in 1952, uh, wrote the wildly popular book, which is still in print, The Power of Positive Thinking, in which he wanted people to see God as a power available to them as they went through their daily lives. He suggested that God is not a personal person, uh, a, you know, a triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He described in The Power of Positive Thinking, God is a kind of electrical energy surrounding the physical universe to which we can have access if we think the right way. All we need to do, he taught uh, in his uh, very picturesque speech, was to picturize, prayerize, and actualize. Uh, this basic approach was also used by Stephen Covey. Uh, Say again? After a small fee, he'll teach. <laughs> you have to buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Stephen Covey uh, used the same basic approach in his wildly successful book, uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Now, unchurched spirituality is also central to various holistic therapies for mental and physical uh, disorders none of which has been more significant in American life uh, than Alcoholics Anonymous. In fact, it was Alcoholics Anonymous uh, that came up with the uh, phrase most typically associated with unchurched spirituality, spiritual but not religious. Raise your hand if you've heard that. came from AA. The principal founder of uh, the movement, Bill Wilson, or simply Bill W., 
uh, as he's known uh, within AA, uh, has a well-known story. He was unable to overcome his addiction, uh, and in a moment of desolation, desperation, cried out, if there is a God, let him show himself. I'm ready to do anything, anything. And then he described what happened next. He said this, suddenly the room lit up with a great white light. I was caught up into an ecstasy, which there are no words to describe. All about me and through me, there was a wonderful feeling of presence. And I thought to myself, so, this is the God of the preachers. A great peace stole over me, and I thought, no matter how wrong things seem to be, they are all right. Things are all right with God and his world. AA and other uh, subsequent 12-step programs to this day stress the cruciality of God consciousness. What a lot of people don't know is that Bill W. and Dr. Bob, the, uh, the founders of AA, were very uh, suspicious of organized religion, uh, particularly with the moralism associated with a biblical worldview. Uh, Bill W., in fact, uh, rejected traditional uh, evangelical admonitions. Uh, to confess his sin and accept Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. He thought that uh, churches were not going to be able to supply this God consciousness. And he felt that urgings, uh, particularly of Protestant preachers, to uh, uh, convert in a religious fashion, he found them more of an obstacle than a help. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I have the utmost respect for AA. Uh, my nephew... Uh, goes to uh, a meeting every day. Uh, and Tyler is a very serious Christian man. Many very serious Christians have been a part of AA. Please don't hear me to uh, suggest to you uh, that AA is all unchurched. It's not. But in its origins, it was. Uh, this outlook was given uh, intellectual... Uh, support uh, by the psychologist Carl Jung, uh, who famously regarded God as the collective unconscious. Uh, and his outlook, this outlook was central to the thoughts of other popularizers of uh, Jungian psychology, like Viktor Frankl, uh, Rollo May, and uh, in, uh, in our time, uh, Ken Wilber. So, Uh, in this brief synopsis of unchurched spirituality in its golden age, the late 19th and the 20th centuries, we continue to see some of the characteristics that we noted at the beginning. It emerges from a dissatisfaction with conventional religion. It emerges among a minority of people, never more than 10%, usually smaller, who are white, well-educated, and well-off. It typically does not emerge as a result of negative interactions with conventional religion. It's focused on experience. It's weak on forming relationships and community. And as a consequence, uh, these movements have had trouble lasting for more than a generation or so. Reluctant to develop mediators or teachers, it's ill-equipped to deal with crises like war because it assumes that the spiritual world is uniformly good. So, what can we affirm in all this? Well, as I said uh, earlier, the fact that unchurched spirituality emerges from a dissatisfaction 
with conventional religion like our Catholicism implies a critique that we uh, Catholics are obliged to take seriously. I have read, and I'm sure you have read, uh, many of the articles written by uh, Catholic scholars, by bishops, uh, about the people who have left the Catholic Church. Most of the people who have left the Catholic Church or who have never joined are not motivated by some kind of negative experience of the church. Some have. Some have had bad experiences, but most have not. For most of them, it's just not a matter of having met unpleasant church people. Uh, it's not even a matter of the clergy sex scandal, although that has been the case for some. For most of those who leave the Catholic Church or who never join, and please hear this, they just can't see that our Catholicism has made much of a difference to us. They may ask. In fact, they do ask, what difference has your Catholicism made in your life? And the astonishing reality is that most Catholics can't say. The astonishing reality is that most Catholics can't say. Now, the people in this room may be able to say, but you're the people who saw a topic like Christian kenosis and came out on a Thursday night anyway. <clears throat> What difference does your Catholic faith make in the way you deal with your wife, your husband, your children, your, uh, your parents? What difference does your Catholic faith make in the way you do your work, deal with your co-workers, your patients, your students, your customers, your neighbors? What difference does your Catholic faith make in the way you spend your time, spend your money, where you live, how you talk, where you go, how you relax? And do any of those things do any of those decisions and choices make a difference to the poor, to the sick, to the lonely, to the angry, to the homeless, faceless, feckless, clueless, luckless, and hopeless? If we can't say, and most of our parishioners can't, then why should we be surprised that there are those who say, usually politely, but sometimes not, I'm looking for something that does make a difference. So here then is a challenge for us all. Before you go to bed tonight, here's my challenge for you. Try to write one paragraph, one paragraph in response to this prompt. What difference does it make that I'm a Catholic? Before you go to bed tonight, write one paragraph. What difference does it make that I'm a Catholic? We've uh, discussed tonight that one of the characteristics of unchurched spirituality is that it's very, very focused on personal religious experience. Now, we're going to drill deeper down into uh, that characteristic in the talk next week. Uh, but by way of anticipation, we can reflect a little bit tonight on the fact that the New Testament is very ambivalent uh, about personal religious experience. Jesus told more than one crowd that uh, they were there only because they wanted to see the bread trick again. <clears throat> in one of the most well-known texts in all of the New Testament, 
1 uh, Corinthians 13, St. Paul says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In the New Testament, personal religious experiences, spiritual gifts, and miracles are not significant for what they are, but for what they point to. In the second chapter of Mark's Gospel, uh, there is a story of the healing of the paralytic, that poor guy who was hoisted to the top of the... Uh, poor paralytic, he's you know, tied to his bed, hoisted to the roof by his buddies. They make a hole, lower him down, and there he is at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus' first words to the paralytic were these. Okay, all of you who didn't answer, all right. St. Bernadette, starting September 21st, Bible study, 730. Okay. <clears throat> My son, your sins are forgiven. And that made the scribes cranky. And when they grumbled, Jesus said, he said, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say to the paralytic, stand up, take your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, your mat and go. And he did. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, that was the big deal, not the healing. All of our personal religious experiences, all of our spiritual gifts, all the miracles that we've seen in our lives. Some of you who know me know uh, about a very great miracle, excuse me, in my life, uh, happened to my grandson. All of those things, all the signs and wonders, have to have a moral point. If they don't drive us to the Son of Man who has authority on earth to forgive sins, if they do not drive us to God the Father who says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, then so what? Apart from a moral point, it's just the bread trick. So here then is another challenge for all of us and another writing assignment for you. Before you go to bed tonight, try to write one paragraph on this prompt. Think of the most significant religious experience you've ever had. What was the moral point? Think of the most significant uh, religious experience you've ever had. What was the moral point? We've seen tonight that one of the flaws of unchurched spirituality is its inability to deal with crisis. During the crises of the Civil War, the World Wars, unchurched spirituality had nothing to offer. And it went into hibernation. It just wasn't there. The church was. We are in the midst of another crisis today. We are in the midst of another crisis uh, today, a profoundly moral one in which human nature is itself at, uh, at risk. R.R. Uh, R. Reno, the editor of, uh, of First Things, 
has a new book out called Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. He puts it this way. Our country is entering a crisis. The once expansive, confident American middle class is dissolving. Economic globalization has eroded the wages of middle class workers. An ever cruder mass culture normalizes dysfunctional behavior. People are either winners or losers, and there's less and less in between. Everything, it seems, is fluid, mobile, impermanent. But the crisis is deeper. It can't be captured in the statistics of drug addiction and suicide. It's a crisis of declining trust and stability, lost solidarity and permanence. We Americans like to compliment ourselves for our independence and self-sufficiency, but there's a dark side to our national character. A deep sadness comes when we realize that we're on our own, which is where secular individualism brings us in the end. Many now live without a father in heaven. For an increasing number of young people, there's not even a father at home. A nation of orphans, literal or metaphorical, will not long endure. Unchurched spirituality is not equal to this crisis. And it never has been. Is our Catholicism? Should be. Could be. I'm brave enough to say shall be. But if we're not sure, what is our Catholicism, our Catholicism, the way we live our Catholic faith, what does our Catholicism require to rise to this challenge? We need many things. But perhaps most of all, we need spiritual masters in our parishes. Priests, certainly but even more lay people who know the richness of authentic Catholic Catholic spirituality and can lead us there. Next Thursday night, uh, we're going to drill down deeper into yoga, Zen, and Transcendental Meditation, uh, three of the more recent options on the menu of unchurched spirituality. We'll also discuss some of the basics of authentic Catholic spirituality and how all of that can make a very big difference for all of us Catholics, but especially us lay Catholics who are trying to be seriously joyful and joyfully serious about our vocation. Thanks so much. Um, I would like to know if you see any strands of spirituality in the gospel of prosperity. Uh, Can you say that one more time, please? I would like to know if you see any strands of spirituality in the gospel of prosperity. No. Uh, uh, The so-called gospel of wealth uh, has been around for a long time. Uh, It's simply an apologia for making a lot of money. Uh, in uh, whatever way suits you, uh, and putting a patina of righteousness on that. Um, don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, uh, Andrew Carnegie was extremely generous. He was one of the people that uh, developed the gospel of wealth. Uh, but the way it's uh, it's been distorted since then. Uh, now, I've, I've, I hope I'm not sinning against charity by saying I don't see anything redemptive in it. So. In my parish, I can identify maybe one 
or two spiritual masters, the, pa the pastor and a couple of PhD in systematic theology students, would you settle for some apprentices and journeymen? Yes. How about that? One no, one yes. <laughs> uh, yes, I would. Uh, but uh, uh, one of the things our churches have to be serious about, uh, in my judgment, is bringing people along. If we don't have enough, what are we going to do to make more? Uh, we have to be intentional about that. Uh, and I think the, the, uh, the image of, uh, of apprentices is a good one. Okay? All right, we have a question coming in from online. Yes. Uh, from Washington. In a crisis... Do the spirituality, uh, in a crisis, do the spiritually unchurched tend to turn to organized religion? Gosh, that's, uh, that's it's hard to say. Uh, I, can only, uh, I can only answer that from my own experience, uh, and in my own experience, uh, yes. Uh, people recognize uh, the uh, inadequacy of the tradition that they're in, uh, and they seek sources from... Uh, well, organized religion. Uh, I was at a meeting for uh, RCIA the other night, uh, and I was struck by the stories. That we were trading stories, you know, uh, why did you come to RCIA? Uh, and uh, one, one person after another was talking about a moment of crisis where they, when they realized the resources available to them uh, were inadequate. And here they are at RCIA. Uh, so, but I, that's admittedly anecdotal. Uh, that's my experience. There may be uh, other people out there who have had uh, some other experience, but that's mine. Uh, I'd like to know what's the, the difference between St. John of the Cross, nothingness, you know, and kenosis and nirvana. You know, I know little about both subjects, but don't have it real clear. I'm not an expert uh, on the Spanish Carmelites. Uh, I'm enough of a, I feel confident enough to say uh, that uh, St. John of the Cross uh, and all the other Carmelites uh, would never dream of diminishing the importance of Christ. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, in the, uh, uh, in the Dark Night of the Soul, it uh, talks about how that's the only thing uh, that can keep you going. Uh, in Nirvana, uh, all those uh, traditions that talk about uh, Nirvana, you're taking even that and saying that's going to experience extinction, too. I can't imagine uh, uh, St. John of the Cross ever going there. Does that help? Okay. For those of us that have um, family members or friends that have left the church and are practicing um, these types of spirituality, how would you even begin the discussion because the gap seems to be so wide. Um. I'll tell you what, uh, something we've been doing at St. Bernadette. Um, I, uh, I appreciate the awkwardness that you're talking about. Uh, it's very, very difficult to start a conversation. Uh, one of the things that, we were, uh, that came out of our Bible study, there's a couple of members of uh, that Bible study group uh, here tonight, which is very gratifying, and thank you for coming. Um, <clears throat> The, uh, we were talking about this very thing a year or so ago. Uh, how can we uh, get through to folks? And generally speaking, if all you've got uh, is arguments, it's not going to go very far. But if you've got something else, you know, this is something that my parish is doing. Uh, 
Would you like to uh, be a part of that? Uh, that's a much more positive way to uh, make an, an, an entry uh, into the kind of conversation you're talking about. So uh, we talked about a lot of things. One of the things we decided to do, uh, we called it Can a Week Project. Everybody, we, we were encouraging every member of the parish, when you come to Mass uh, on the weekend, bring a can of food. Uh, put it in the box. We, uh, our goal was to take a thousand things a week to Echo. And we've gotten there a few times. It's usually some player, somewhere between eight to 750 and 1,000 things every week. We want to move up from there. People hear about that, and they say, that's really cool. And you know what? It's easy. It's easy. Uh, we need a little bit more push from, uh, from some of our priests. <clears throat> Not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, but we... Uh, we uh, we're doing something that's, uh, that's a real positive thing, and people uh, like to hear about that sort of thing. That's the kind of thing that can start a conversation uh, where uh, if people sense that all you really got, all you're really trying to do is start an argument that you can win. You see what I mean? Uh, so what I would encourage uh, uh, in your parish is uh, get together some like-minded people and try to find some form of witness uh, that is useful, and achievable uh, in your parish. You, you all know what's uh, achievable in your parish best. All right? And then go do that. And use that as a way to start conversations uh, with people who are um, unchurched. Does that help? Okay. As I asked the person next to me, he explained, you say, uh, we, the Catholic, is different from uh, Buddhist or any other religious like yoga, Jain, Confucius or something. Yes. And I think we are not different. The only different maybe all of the Pope, all of us, we believe the forgiveness of of God, the the God of mercy, we, God of mercy. Uh, we, if we have courage to come back to God, then He will forgive. And all of the other religious, they are not concentrated in forgiveness, the 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 mercy of God, but they do believe in God too, and. It is not like the emptiness, nirvana. But I, I think Jain or meditation, it, which means like the way they thinking, uh, maybe in different kind of God. Even like the Egyptian in the earlier time, they believe, they believe like, like the spirit, and we have the Holy Spirit. Which means like they believe that mountain, tree, animal, they do have their own spirit. So we are not similar to them. We say we have three, the the Trinity. And so I I want to come back. The question is, we may be only different because most of the book from great people, philosophers, they say that we 
we have the God of mercy. And in the Bible, at least three, four different stories, God give mercy to their own people. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I heard a question, uh, but uh, I think I, 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 I can respond to I think what you're saying, because this very topic came up in a class I was teaching today. Uh, one of the classes that I teach at Centerville High School is World Religions. Yes, we do have that. Um, and <clears throat> the way I teach World Religions, uh, uh, the very first week of school, uh, I talk about some of the dumb things that people say about uh, religion. People say an awful lot of dumb things about religion. Uh, a lot of our teachers do, and I have to go and talk to these teachers. Uh, about some of the things they say. They're, uh, and we're not talking about differences in interpretation. We're talking about being wrong on the facts. One of the things that uh, some of our teachers uh, say, and they say this every year, all religions teach basically the same thing. False. Uh, that's not a matter of interpretation. That's wrong on the facts. Uh, in my world religions class, uh, I have uh, three young women who are Muslims and they wear a hijab every day. Uh, one is from Ethiopia, uh, one is from Afghanistan, and one is from Pakistan. Uh, it's going to be a really interesting year. Um, <clears throat> uh, but one of the things that happened today was, uh, for instance, uh, I was looking at uh, one girl, uh, and her name is Wafa. Uh, she's from Ethiopia. And I said, Wafa, you and I see the world very, very differently. Uh, she was in my U.S. history class, so I, could, I knew I could do this with her. Uh, you and I see the world very differently. Uh, you uh, do not think uh, that you have a, a personal relationship with Allah. And she said, that's true. Uh, because in Islam, uh, the idea of a personal relationship with, uh, with Allah is anathema. Okay, that's a really uh, bad pun. Um, well, anyway. Uh, it's a, I'll have to be one of my geek jokes later on. Anyway, uh, in, in Islam... Uh, for Allah to have a personal relationship with you or with me would diminish Allah. And not no way, not know how do you diminish Allah in Islam. Uh, and I said, Wafa, I'm, uh, I'm right about that, yes? She said, absolutely right. You see? I, on the other hand, uh, believe uh, that I do have a personal relationship with the Almighty. Uh, and that is the center of my life, in the same way that your, uh, uh, your religion is the center of your life. Right? She said, right. And this was so, such a, a shocking thing to some of the students uh, in the class because they'd heard this other thing, that all religions teach basically the same thing. But they just don't. Some religions have many gods, some have one god, some have none. This was a shocker, too. You can have a religion with no god? Answer, yes. All right? Buddhism? Jainism, Confucianism, if you accept the fact that Confucianism is a religion. All right? So uh, there are real differences in the various world religious traditions. What I do in my class is I teach them, one, what the differences are, two, why they make a difference, and three, how you can talk about them respectfully. That's the skill I'm trying to get my students uh, to achieve, is to how to talk about the topic of religious difference in a way that builds people up and doesn't tear them down. In a way uh, that we Americans uh, can live together uh, with uh, this unique gift we have of uh, religious freedom. Uh, at least that's the, uh, the claim we're making these days. Okay? So, um, 
uh, I think uh, you're absolutely right that the thing that makes uh, Christianity so distinctive is that we have this personal relationship with a merciful God who is yearning to be merciful to us. That is a crucial uh, and beautiful distinction uh, in Christianity. Uh, and my appeal to all of you tonight is to learn how to talk about that uh, with greater confidence as Catholics. All right. Thank you again, Dr. Campbell. All right. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.